Streaming audio is made possible by Hungry Harvest, delivering farm-fresh produce and grocery staples to your door. Every delivery allows you to support local donations that fight hunger in the community. Learn more at HungryHarvest.net. Before this episode, we wanted to let you know about a festival we're co-sponsoring in D.C. in June called Seventh Stainine. Seventh Day Nine will take place on Friday, June 19th, and all day Saturday, June 20th at Rhizome in the city's Tacoma Park neighborhood. And the lineup will be announced very soon. More information can be found at SeventhStayNine.com. Now, on to the show. Maybe, maybe that song isn't like hugely uh, impactful in my life, but I don't know if I would have like liked performing if it weren't for Pee Wee Herman and that song. And maybe it made me comfortable in front of audiences, and I don't know. This is Essential Tremors. I'm Lee Gardner. I'm Matt Byers. The idea behind this show is to have musicians and other creators talk about songs that shaped who they are. We're not looking for favorite songs, necessarily. We're also not looking for songs that they'd choose to take with them if they were stranded on a desert island. What we're looking for are songs that have significance to them. Songs that might have changed the course of their creative lives, or their lives in general. After moving to Baltimore in 2004 and forming the Wham City Collective, Dan Deacon released his breakout Spider-Man of the Rings album in 2007, which earned Best New Music status by influential music site Pitchfork that same year. Since, he's cultivated a growing audience, first with his hyperkinetic and immersive live shows, and more so over time with his ever-evolving musicianship and deftness as a composer, both on his own recordings and also for TV and film. Frequently making his own electronic instruments and using pre-existing ones in completely unexpected ways, Deacon is restlessly and endlessly inventive. 
the first song Deacon chose as being formative for him was Tequila by the Champs. this plan of tricking you um but let's just uh, i'm gonna We're go up for that <laughs> we are i want to talk about brahms's first sy- symphony for a while and be like no that's not that doesn't mean anything about <laughs> um but i'm going with uh tequila so why did you why did you pick this song uh because i love i love loved and love uh peewee herman as a child and that scene in uh, Pee Wee's Big Adventure just, I don't know, really resonated with me. And I like demanded that my parents buy me a suit. And I used to like wear that suit whenever I could to like family functions. And I would like always request the DJ to play that song. And I would do the dance. And it's a very embarrassing portion of my life. But I, I don't know why, but like I really liked, I, I knew it was funny. Like, I didn't think I looked cool. You know, I wasn't like, this is going to make me awesome. It was funny. And I think I liked performing and having that, like, humorous aspect to it. Tequila. <laughs> <laughs> well, did you have the shoes? I had, um, that's a good question. I can't remember. I I had, I remember going all out. And I'm, I'm. I couldn't ride a bike for the longest time. I just, I don't know if it was like I had no idea how to like engage my core or what, but um, I really wanted a red bike, like Pee Wee's bike. And so I must have had the shoes. If I'm like going down to the bike, which he hardly has in the film at all, since the whole movie of the bike is lost, um, it was a Ross. It was a Ross bike. I don't know if you remember Ross bikes, but uh, it was Ross. That's That's right. Maybe maybe that song isn't like hugely uh, impactful in my life, but I don't know if I would have like liked performing if it weren't for Pee Wee Herman and that song. And maybe it made me comfortable in front of audiences. And I don't know. I just on the way over, I was like, oh yeah, I used to be obsessed with the song Tequila. That's interesting that you were. I, I like that comment that you were aware that it's um, it wasn't like cool, um, but you were aware that it was funny. But there was. I guess was that why you were performing because it was funny was there something in addition to that I liked doing it so there was like a uh, I don't know some sort of self gratification in there I don't know if that's the way to put that but uh, I don't know like my other cousins my age would like be dying with laughter and I think at me while like the my like aunts and uncles and other cousins like I think thought it was funny and I never got to the part where I was like smashing all the beer steins. That would have been uh, maybe a bit much, but 
I don't know. It was just something that I I just always wanted to do. And then there was one time where I can't remember what the family function was, but I requested it and the DJ claimed he didn't have it. And I was like, you've got to be, don't you see the suit? Did I mention I have a Ross bicycle? And for some reason that like psyched me out and I never did it again. What what age would this period have been? I was about 32. You know, um, <laughs> I don't know. I guess uh, when does one eat the body of Christ for the first time in Catholicism? Does anyone know? Oh, uh, is it confirmation or is it communion. your first communion? First communion. So first communion was that. I, I, when do they make children eat flesh of their God? <laughs> does anyone Well, remember? confirmation in, in the standard mainline Protestant faith would be around 12 or 13. This would have been younger than that. Yeah, I think First Communion might be like 8 or 9. Yeah, I would have just started eating the the blood of the deity that I worshipped. Um, but I still didn't like commit my soul eternal to the beliefs of my ancestors yet. Did, did the song somehow continue on past that period as something that I mean, it's sort of this ubiquitous thing. Did it, you know? Did you hear it somewhere? And tequila, yeah, and, <laughs> and feel the feel the move. It brings a tear to my eye every time I hear it to this day. Um, I was in a ska band in high school. The natural progression of being obsessed with Pee Wee Herman and owning a Ross bicycle is, uh, you you join a high school ska band, and we covered that song. We used to play like um, backyards and barbecues and stuff like that, and we covered tequila and. Always a crowd pleaser. And so, yeah, I guess so. I'm trying to remember if I... I still love DJing it whenever I'm, like, DJing a party or I DJ a lot of film festivals and I love... There's this really... I can't remember who does it, but there's this, like, 80s or 90s, like, synth sort of minimal remix of Tequila and it's really nice. But, like I said, the song... I don't know if it really, like... I don't know. I guess I'm embarrassed, but I started with this one. But I do think it was a. Uh, I'm just trying to think of songs from when I was a kid because, like, we used to listen to music all the time in the house. My dad had a big record collection, and then like when you had to have CDs, CDs sort of became in. But I don't know. I don't know if any like the Beatles or the Kinks or the Donovan songs I've been playing in the house like affected me as much as like that period of time and all the music of Pee Wee Herman was incredible the whole show and the whole aesthetic but for some reason that that one scene which isn't really an important scene in the film at all but very iconic scene it just really really resonated with me you know sometimes there's a song especially one that's been heard a bazillion times that's you know like older and every now and then I just sort of think about you know there were a bunch of people in a room in a studio at one point and they went in and they recorded this thing and somehow it 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 took on this magical property right it's like and they were probably just you know dudes with you know like shark skin suits or something like that you know and they go into the studio and make this thing that has this life that i'm sure will you know outlive them oh for certain yeah i wonder if it like would technically fall underneath. The, I guess people know who who wrote it, but I guess not everybody knows who wrote it. Like the, like what's that, um, the White Stripes song that people sing at stadiums? Seven Nation Army. Seven Nation Army. That is now considered, I think, like a folk song. That like, and I think in some places they don't need to pay royalties on the track because 
it is so known just as that riff that people sing, then they and they don't know that other stadiums sing it. They think that it's like, oh no, we do this here in our stadium. It's just like a thing that totally we do. Really true. Um, I went. This is also based on Wikipedia, so I have no idea if this was just a maniac who hacked. Hacked is not the right word, but hacked Wikipedia with that information at the exact time I happened to be there. But I often think, like, will Shout be considered a folk song? Will that exist for another, like, 150 years and everyone will know that, like, when it gets quiet for some reason, you start crouching towards the ground, even though that has nothing to do with being quiet? And will tequila be the same thing where, like... For some reason, every generation will be at some sort of gathering and there'll be a stop in some sort of saxophone song and then everyone will yell tequila as loud as they possibly can. And that will just continue on until we are no longer sentient beings on this planet. That's rhetorical, right? I'm be supposed to no, I that. need to know yeah. right now. <laughs> well, I'd ask, I was going to ask you this. Well, first of all, First Communion is age seven. Seven. To, See, it's, I Google. think that makes sense. I would have been around there. Yeah. That would have been like bicycle riding age probably, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so when I think of you, the first thing I think of is your, when you were sort of uh, becoming well-known and your performances and how you would set up on the floor and have these mobs of people around you rather than be on stage and that's obviously a really intense choice to make right and if this song hadn't happened to you in this way of replicating this this song when you were seven years old do you think that you would have done the same thing would you have performed in the same way I don't know I think the, the performing on the floor definitely stems from uh, I really got into like the American DIY in college, like uh, underground music, especially the Providence scene, um, particularly the band Lightning Bolt. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the venues at the time didn't have stages. They were just like warehouses or houses or basements and garages. So that's sort of like where I cut my teeth and I would like travel and tour because like before I had any sort of, you know, this is the, the, the golden era of MySpace where you could go on to MySpace and be like, I like this band. Let's look at their top eight. Oh, I only know two of these top eights. Let's check out these other six. Oh, someone's a booking shows in Cleveland. So you could book a whole national tour through the, the fractaling down through top eights across the country. And when I finally started getting some sort of uh, success or notoriety, whatever you want to call it, and I started playing places with stages. It was really uncomfortable. Like, I was just so used to playing on the floor, and a lot of the bands I looked up to always played on the floor, so it just seemed like a natural progression. The second song Deacon chose as essential to his formation as an artist was Assassins by Lightning Bolt.
I would say if we're gonna dovetail right in from Tequila, I would say the Lightning Bolt song Assassins off of their album Wonderful Rainbow, I think, is definitely a life changing song. I'm, I tend to listen to albums uh, other than Tequila, which I only listen to. You know, I, before I go to bed every night, I like to have like a nice cup of hot tea and just put on Tequila. And, you know, I've got a lathe cut of the uh, original master. And, um, no, but I, I think li- albums are more important to me, but um, I tend to be an album-based listener. Uh, but that track is definitely a standout track on that record, and uh, I would go with Assassins. I feel like that whole, it embodies that whole era of music. I remember, like, the first time I heard Lightning Bolt, I was like, this is the next Nirvana. Like, music is going to completely change. And then I think, like, nothing like that at all happened, unfortunately. And I remember feeling that wave several times throughout uh, from college to now being like, wow, this is going to completely change everything about music. And then someone with a billion dollars was like, no, it's not. It's not going to touch anyone at all. And uh, just teaches you a lot about how exposure to certain music is very limited. So I felt really lucky to have uh, gotten into weird music at all. I, I grew up on Long Jealousy, Uncut Gems. Dying too. I haven't seen it yet. It's Heard excellent. Um, I grew up on Long Island, and I often wonder, like, uh, what would have happened to me if I hadn't discovered weird music? Like, would I have been like a weird shady accountant who got into cars, or like was into going to the beach, even though my body should be forbidden from going to the beach? Like, what would my life had been like? Um, I largely credit that to Mr. Bungle, although we're not going to discuss Mr. Bungle. <laughs> you seem so good. I think Mr. Bungle is a, an undersung gateway for many a young lad and last. Did you own a snake? I did not own a okay. snake. Uh, but Mi- we'll Mr. Bungle is definitely a gateway. Um, the email said about three songs, so maybe we can talk about Mr. Bungle a little bit. Just a little. Oh, yeah, I think it's just a roll. bungles amount. I'll, I'll regret it as I'm editing it, but let's just go. <laughs> just go. Chemical Marriage off Disco Volante is an awesome, awesome song. Uh, I, w- I was into their first record just because it was kind of ska, and I was trying to get into as much ska as possible. And I had a friend who had an older brother who was just like, he was relentless with telling us how bad ska was. And in hindsight... It was probably advice we shouldn't have we should have uh, taken, but Scott was fun. It's just fun, good time music. Grow along, Alan. What, what do you want from me? And uh, but I remember when he played Mister Bungle, I was like, "Whoa! I didn't know. I didn't know you were allowed to do this. I didn't know music like this was allowed." And I didn't really like distortion, so I didn't get into punk or hardcore. Um, I was really into They Might Be Giants and the Violent Femmes, and like kind of getting into like the the very, very fringe of pop music, like stuff that would still be signed to major. I guess uh, Mr. Bungle's on a major. I guess they were on Warner Brothers, which is crazy. And around that time, uh, the Boredoms yeah. were on Warner Brothers. Yeah, so. There was this magazine called Huh, H-U-H, that I subscribed to, and it would come with uh, a magazine that I would never read. I would just like hang the pictures up my wall but it had a CD every month that's why I got it and one month it was ween back to back into the boredoms and that was uh, I'd already heard Mr. Bungle so my my mind was blown but not as blown as it would have been if I just heard B for boredom for the first time but 
Mr. Like you said, Mr. Bungle, very important gateway band for I mean it just I do think I would be like a corrupt city council person living in like Lindenhurst Long Island and I don't know what my life would have been like I would I think that's why I think of Uncut Gems and I was like what if Howie had heard Lightning Bolt or got into paper ad animation or what could have happened to Howie well I, I wanted to ask if you can remember and would talk a little bit about the first time you saw Lightning Bolt oh sure First time I saw Lightning Bolt, uh, I was at Purchase, which is the school I went to. It was in Westchester, New York, in like the middle of nowhere. So going to the city was a big deal. Even though it was only 50 miles away, like getting to the train station was like, you'd have to like summon God to get there. There was no like shuttle that went to the train station, especially at night, and there was no bus or train. So you had to find someone to drive you. And found someone who would drive because taxis yeah, I'm not going to call a taxi I don't have any money at all I'm going to call a taxi um, so we somehow get to the train station and we hear about this show and it's in a chicken f- factory I don't know what you would call it but it's where live chickens are kept for, and then they get like distributed to places that sell live chickens so it's this gigantic chicken warehouse and we get there absurdly early because I don't want to miss it at all. I think it's going to sell out because in my mind they're the new Nirvana. There's going to be 10,000 people there. And we get there and like the bands aren't even there yet. And they let us in because they're like, all right, sure. And we look like total psychopaths. Like I used to uh, dress pretty wild in college. Uh, Anyway, so it's a bunch of people who I moved to Baltimore with and we started this group called Wham City. And we're there and we're just sort of like killing time. And there's feathers everywhere, like stuck into the floor. And I'm like sitting on the floor and I'm like, oh, what are those feathers stuck to? Oh, I know what they're stuck to now. Um, And uh, so the place was filthy. And the band starts showing up and I'm bored and I have all this like anxious energy. So we start loading in and I think like Brian Gibson is like, he's like, yeah, you can help, but why do you want to help us? <laughs> like, and it's like, what are you doing, kid? What's going, what's wrong with you? What's Have you not game? hurt your back yet? It's going to happen. <laughs> and um, there were a bunch of bands. I, this band USA is a monster who I became a huge fan of, played that show. Japanther played that show. Maybe the White Mice played that show. All these bands that like would go to form. Like It was like um, I was into Spider-Man, and all of a sudden I was like, being like, wait a minute, there's the X-Men. Oh, my God, there's the event. Like, all these other characters were emerging. But the Lightning, and it was like, I don't know, it was way too many bands. By the time Lightning Bolt announced that, I was like, okay, I got to get the train home. Let's go. Um, but the show is insane. I'm not, like I said, I'd never gotten into, like, hardcore or punk. And I I liked a good mosh pit. Don't get me wrong. A mosh pit was fine back in my early 20s, late teens. But this was just preposterous. It was really, really crazy to the point where I, I'm a pretty, like, anxious, it's hard for me to, like, get lost in the moment kind of mindset. So I was just like, ah, inside my head the whole time, like, this is dangerous. And I don't know if I saw them again for years and years, but uh, Chippendale, the drummer, has another band called Mind Flayer. I booked. I used to book the shows at my school. That was like my job. It was an awesome job. I highly suggest if, if any of you are looking for jobs, get a job booking shows at a college as a college student. Just enroll in the school. You can be any age. Um, 
I took a nap today. I'm a little wired, sorry. <laughs> Went to the dentist earlier, got a deep clean. Uh, my first deep clean of my life. This is the first time I've gone to the dentist as an adult. And uh, didn't have any insurance my whole life or growing up. So there, anyway, I know this is all, we're supposed to segue into like the, you know, uh, dental routine of the segment. But that Mind Flare show, I, I just dislocated my shoulder and maybe it was because I was already hurt. I didn't care. But that was like the first time I think I was in a crowd and I was just like, I'm just not going to give a shit. Oh, I can't curse. I curse. Yeah, you totally can. I can? We'll, we'll edit it. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll give it another. That was the first time where I was like, I don't give a darn. I'm just going to go in there and let the wiles of the of the crowd take me. And it was fine. Nothing happened. I mean, something terrible could happen. My shoulder was basically hanging on by a thread and a sling. But that was a really empowering show and made me feel really like, I don't know, comfortable and free in that sort of environment. But looking back, like to go back to the tequila, like, I don't know. But I do think there's a, you know, a, a thread that you could, you know, connect from tequila to Lightning Bolt to that Mind Flayer show. Of course, Mr. Bungle is in there somewhere. Ska as well. He can't leave out Ska. I think a lot more people are were secretly into Ska, and they're just so happy that GeoCities is no longer on the internet. They're like, ah, oh, yes, take down my dark past of Ska. No one will know. I, I do meet people at shows that are like revered electronic musicians that were like, you know, I was in this particular Ska band, but luckily the Moon Ska catalog isn't on Spotify, and nobody knows. <laughs> wasn't Al from, um, wasn't Al Schatz? Was he? Did he say he was in a ska band or was he in something? He was in an in, he was in, he, in he was sort, in of, sort of a jangly guitar. Oh, that stink! That's intense. but he loves ska. This is true. We went to go see Less Than Jake together um, recently this year or last year, and it was awesome. But we both got the flu afterwards. <laughs> from Jake? From pit sickness? From Jake? Yeah. Oh, from Jake. Yeah. I have to say, I I I redirected. <clears throat> to Lightning Bolt because I have my own particular Oh, please, road to, yes. Road to, well, I'm not going to go into the whole story, but at a certain point... you got to tell two Scott stories if you're going to tell one Lightning Bolt story, though. I, I don't really have I don't any have Scott any Scott stories. stories yeah. Sad to say. Not, <laughs> yeah, nice not, try, guys. I got them all printed out right here. <laughs> I mean, the specials? Um, they count. Specials count. I yeah. think we did. Like, I think we're just we're over some generational hump where it was not a thing. All I remember is living in D.C. in the early 90s is just the pie tasters. Yeah, the pie yeah, tasters. Right? But I was never a part of any of that, so I don't know. N- neither was I. Sure. Yeah. If you're listening, <laughs> but do, so. the, do, do the deep dive. The evidence out there, listeners. I'm clean. At a certain point, like around the time that uh, their second album came out, Lightning Bolt's second album, mm-hmm. uh, I had been writing about music for a long time and was getting ready to stop doing that because I was going to start doing something else. And was kind of ready for that. And at that point, I kind of was like, you know, I'm kind of done with rock music, air quotes. You know, it's just, I feel like I've heard it all. You know, I've seen it all. I'm just not really interested. And I went to see Lightning Bolt, this band I'd heard about. I hadn't heard, actually hadn't heard their record at that point, uh, playing at Tarantula Hill here in Baltimore. And, you know, it was a, a zillion degrees on the upper floor of Tarantula Hill. And a couple of Force Field played, and uh, uh, some other folks played, um, and then Lightning Bolt played, and it was kind of like, this is what I had been waiting for. This is the thing totally. that I needed that I thought I couldn't get to anymore, 
And, you know, it didn't like, you know, I still didn't write about music except for intermittently for a long time. But just as a listener and a person who was into music, it was like someone put the paddles on my chest and went, you know, uh, restarted everything. So I will always have a spot in my heart for Lightning Bolt. They still rip it up. Their show at the Autobar last month, two months ago, was incredible. And Brian is still such an incredible drummer, and Gibson is doing this, like, Hendrix-level stuff on that bass bass guitar comp with his weird stringed instrument. It's just unbelievable. So, you know, you started out, you were inspired by that scene. You started out very much as a part or a continuation of that scene. Um, and now you do all sorts of things, but, you know, as you pointed out, sort of at a different level. Um, maybe this is a corny question, but do you miss that? Uh, I don't know. I hurt my back real bad in 2009. Um, I think getting just like pummeled again and again and again in the back because it got to the point where when I was playing, I couldn't face the audience because my table just people kept falling on it. So I would brace the table against the stage on the floor or the a wall and just have the speakers either directly in front of me or flanking me. And I would just play like facing the wall or facing the empty stage and people would just be getting like pushed and shoved into me. And part of me was like, this is a terrible idea. And I was getting electrocuted constantly because all my stuff was like held together by duct tape and I made a lot of it. And um, it just was so, so stupid. And I was like, well, if other people are going to be down there and this is going to be like happening to them, it should happen to me. I don't want to subject people to this torment. And then someone was like, you know, I think if you were on the stage, maybe they wouldn't be pushing up so much. And I was like, that's an excellent point. Um, (laughs) But it just got to the point where it wasn't sustainable. And then, like I said, I herniated a disc. And I think this is at Lollapalooza. Um, I played on the stage at Lollapalooza because I was playing with a big ensemble there. But I did a show afterwards and I was playing on the ground. And something happened at that show. It was like one of those... You know, like in Spaceballs, when when uh, John Candy's character Barf goes to stand up, but he still has a seatbelt on. He's like, "Oh, it's gonna leave a mark." Like it kind of felt like that. Like it hurt, but it didn't hurt then. And I was like, "Oh, this is like when I got hit in the back." I was like, "This is gonna hurt tomorrow." And I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what sciatica was, and I had this like horrible pain in my leg for like months and months. And I I never connected that it was my back. I always just thought something was wrong with my leg. And I don't know. That was a wild. And then I was like, I can't. This isn't sustainable. I want to. I wanted to do more with my music then, because when I first started, I was doing everything I could live and everything that I, I. I wanted to write as densely as possible. I didn't want to leave anything out, and I was traveling solo for the most part. So anything that I couldn't perform live, I would have on backing tracks. And at first, it was a CD. And I don't know if any of you have ever held a CD player, but they are not something you want to put in like a crowd of hundreds or thousands of people. There's this cover on, uh, it was in May, the week Spider-Man of the Rings came out. I was on the cover of the New York Times art section, and I'm playing this crazy show at this venue, the Silent Barn in New York, and it looks like utter pandemonium, like a, a staged, cra- like, make it look really crazy, like over-the-top crazy. Like, it is unbelievably crazy, and standing in the center of the photo is my friend and longtime collaborator Chester Guazda standing perfectly still with his elbows pressed against his his side holding a CD player in his hand because if the table got bumped the CD would skip and Chester's just like this steward of all the sound 
And because it has like a 12 second shock skip, that's all garbage. That stuff, if you shake a CD player, it's going to skip immediately. And it would happen all the time. So then I switched to an iPod when I finally had the money to get an iPod because before that I literally had like $5 to my name on a regular basis, like no money at all. Um, that's not hyperbole. Like Jimmy Joe Roche has this picture of me holding my only $2 at the time, and I, I look really pissed off because I'm embarrassed by it, but he's like, you're going to like this photo one day. Um, but where the hell was it? I'm just thinking about those $2. Um, oh, the CD player. So then I got an iPod. But old iPods used to overheat really badly, so I'm playing in the middle of the crowd and all that humidity and all those people, the screen would lock up. So I got an iPod Shuffle. And an iPod Shuffle, adding an iPod Shuffle to your professional touring music set is like, I might as well have been touring with like five parrots. Like, it was just total chaos. It wasn't even like chaotic neutral. It was pure chaotic evil directed solely towards me. Because it wanted, in its nature, to shuffle the songs. And it had, like, a way you could, like, play the songs in order. But there's no screen. There's no display. It's just an eighth-inch jack, and that's it. So, like, if I, like, if I couldn't remember the order the songs were in or if, I don't know, I was just constantly cycling through them. And I think that's where I started talking so much during my shows. As you can tell, I talk a lot. Um, But there's constant technical problems. And I wanted to get away from it. I wanted to add a computer back into the set. And for a while, I was really resistant of that because I hated the late 90s, early 2000s, like, IDM shows where it was just someone sitting at a laptop. You couldn't see what they were doing. There was no physicality to the sound. It was just – there was no theater to it. It was just boring. I was really into John Cage in college, so, like, the whole, like, music is theater, all performance is theater, everything has to have a reason to be – Watched and if it doesn't, then that has to be you know thought about in a way. I was a little too academic for my own good in high school. Not, I mean, not high school. I'm not at all in high school and college. But I hated that scene. I and I liked some of the music, but I couldn't bear to watch it live. So I wanted to make sure my show always had a reason to watch it um, or to it to be physical. So that's why the floor people would look at themselves and they would dance if they couldn't see anything and adding lights and all that chaos. But I wanted to do more, and the laptop had to come back in. So I was really resistant to the laptop for a while, but there was no way I was going to spend, like, $2,000 on a laptop and then set it up in a crowd of people. Like, people would dump water and beer all over the place, and it just didn't make any sense. So when I finally made the transition to the stage, I did miss it for a while, but now I'll still do it one every hundred shows, and I can tell that it's different like the people in the back feel disenfranchised the people in the front are very excited but I'm not performing as much like the stage it evolved throughout all of humanity for a reason I don't want everyone always looking at the stage the whole time I still try to do as much in the audience as possible without me being in it does that make any sense? sure does that make any sense is my way of saying like the end I can't talk about that anymore but I don't know how to just like and a statement naturally so you did a pretty good job thank you very much I tried it just then the final song Deacon chose as being crucial to him was Harder Better Faster Stronger by Daft Punk
song I heard in college and I was going to school for music and I was like really into I didn't like like quote unquote techno or electronic music like that at all but I heard that album Discovery and I just you know couldn't stop listening to it and then I went to Guitar Center and they to see if they sold vocoders because that whole record I didn't I thought that whole record was vocoder I guess it's actually talk box um, and they had this Electrics Warp Factory vocoder on clearance for a hundred bucks. I'm pretty sure I borrowed a hundred bucks from like my roommate and girlfriend at the time, because I certainly didn't have a hundred bucks. And I'm really glad I did. They ended up like, you know, since they were on clearance, the company was going out of business. I don't know why it was like the time to be selling vocoders, but they became these really sought after things. And my whole sound started revolving around that because I wanted vocals but I didn't trust my singing voice I didn't like to sing but I knew I had to add something to my show that again had that physicality to the sound like if you don't know anything about music and you're watching a show you can tell when a drummer like strikes something it you know exactly what made that sound when a singer opens their mouth sound comes out like duh um, but they get taken for granted. Granted, when you think about watching a show, like those are the two oldest instruments, most likely percussion and voice, and I needed to have one of them. And I don't play the drums at all, so if I could do something with my voice. And around the same time, I found um, a WaveTech 180 signal generator, something that just generates sine waves. I found this in the dumpster at my college. I used to go dumpster diving constantly, like me and Jimmy and Dina two friends of mine and still dear friends and collaborators uh, every week we would go Dina had a van so we would drive to all the corporate headquarters that used to be around purchase and they would throw out like computer monitors or gateway 2000s and you know like old tower computers and we try to like take them apart and find stuff in them and purchase was the same like one day they threw out thousands and thousands of records and that's how I found out about like Charles Dodge and Meredith Monk and Pauline Oliveros and so many like weird composers that weren't getting covered in my program just because they're you know you can't cover everybody but these amazing amazing components it was insane that they're throwing out all of these records that have been donated to the school i guess 10 or 15 years prior because probably like the connecticut libraries because they were getting rid of the records so they gave them to suny purchase and purchase or the whole state school system has like you can't throw something out you have to store it for 10 years before it becomes decommissioned in case someone else is like, I want to look up and see if any of the schools have Meredith Monk's album Turtle Dreams. I want to go through about 20,000 pages of paper to see if I can find Turtle Dreams in a storage room in a college an eight hours drive away. So no one did this. So they were constantly throwing stuff out. And the WaveTech 180, that changed my life. Now I had a synth. Like, even though it was just a single oscillator, no effects, it had this gigantic dial, I guess, like, woo, 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 like, solo on it. I loved it. But I needed to add that human element. I couldn't just be turning a, a dial for a career. Little did I know. Um, so I got the vocoder, and I, largely because of Daft Punk. And 
Um, One More Time is a great song, but it was so overplayed that by the time I got the record, I was like, am I even going to like the rest of this? Because, you know, you can be so easily tricked by a, a single, especially like an MTV kind of band. But the whole record just really spoke to me. I I, I don't know. At the time, like I said, I was listening to like Lightning Bolt and Zanakis and Stockhausen and weird noise bands. So to be listening to this like slickly produced, very, you know, mainstream focused electronic music, I was like sh- shocked that I liked it so much. But without that song, I don't think I would have bought the vocoder. And if I didn't buy it at that exact time, I wouldn't have been able to afford it or buy one. I don't know when the next, like, Guitar Center stocked vocoder was sold. Like, I don't know when, you know, maybe, like, the Electro Harmonics vocoder. But that would have been, like, 10 or something years later. And the vocoder was – it's still an integral part of my set. So without that weird string of things that led me to it, I think – I think without that Daft Punk song, I don't know what I would be doing. Uh, did you ever read, uh, I think it's the author's name is Dave Thompson, How to Wreck a Nice Beach? No. I, I think that you and everyone who would bother to track down a dorky podcast like this one should go out and find a copy of Dave Thompson's uh, How to Wreck a Nice Beach, which is a history of the vocoder. Oh, I think I have heard about it. I think I saw this, and it talks about it from its like early military applications, right? Right, right. It was basically um, um, encryption, and then yeah. it ended up obviously doing a lot of other things. I don't know why I didn't buy this book when I saw it. I remember seeing it at like the Barnes and Noble on uh, I don't know one of the ones in town, and um, just being like, "Oh wow, I should get this." And instead, I was like, "I'm just going to put it down and walk away." But. Um, yeah, I think about that. I didn't. I could never remember what that book was called. So, thank you. Certainly. Well, and if you had walked away from that vocoder, as we've established, who knows? You might have ended up uh, an accountant with and really into cars. I think so. On the beach, ruining it. <laughs> This has been Essential Tremors. Essential Tremors is produced by me, Matt Byers, and Lee Gardner. Essential Tremors is distributed by WYPR Baltimore and NPR. Look for and subscribe to all of WYPR's podcasts at wypr.org slash podcast central. For more information about Essential Tremors, go to EssentialPodcast.com. Thanks for listening.